Yeah, uh Heavy Crown Radio, you know it's going down With Denise, you can see, she's the queen with the crown Talking real life, wild nights, and current events Breaking down, even giving tips on relationships Hey, you don't wanna miss, ready, here we go Keep it tuned in, Heavy Crown Radio Super entertaining, yeah, that's for sure Keep it tuned in, Heavy Crown Radio for a while because it's something very close to my heart. It's something that has really affected my life and my family's lives. And it's something I think that, you know, most of the people that are friends with us or who are acquaintances know about, but you don't know the full story. You only know what you, what you've heard or what you think you've heard or what you think you know I can guarantee that after this conversation you are going to know more than you knew before not only about my sister and I but you're going to understand us better as people and you're also going to understand that prejudgments and any prejudgments that you have made about us aren't what you quite thought and it's going to change your opinion so I just want to say that um, at the outset I do have Joanne here with me. We got a couple of lattes and we decided that, you know, we were hiding in the car from the children because we know they're going to run in every five minutes. So we took we took a little ride for ourselves in order to, you know, record this and do this. And, you know, it's it's a very important thing because if I can give you the background on my sister and I a little bit, Joanne, we didn't have the easiest time getting along when we were younger. <laughs> we we did not get along. We did not have a very good relationship. We had a very tumultuous relationship, and it did not change until I wanted. Probably within the last year was when it finally changed. So I think for a while we were the definition of sibling rivalry. Yeah, we were like definitely sibling rivalry. We were definitely like, and it's weird because I feel like we looked at each other the way you would look at like an outsider, the way you'd be like, I don't trust this person that they, they're A, B, and C, you know, they're going to try to pull one over on me. And it's like, and that's not how it was, but it was just, I think that was like our incorrect assumptions about each other. But one of the main things I want to say is that the, the, the part that I was talking about at the outset is that, so my sister did not have an issue with opiates. She did not have an issue with, you know, cocaine or any of, the, any of those types of drugs. Her drug of choice was alcohol and... And pills. And, you know, what kind of pills? Uh, benzodiazepines, specifically, like uh, Xanax, Ativan, Quanapin, drugs like those, I... You know, towards the end of my addiction, before I really hit rock bottom, um, I really enjoyed those because they they numbed me up real good. I, I'm going to touch upon that again in a, in a moment, but what I really want to say is that this is a hereditary thing in our family that, you know, we have a long line of alcoholism in our family and addiction, mm-hmm. and it's something that, you know, you always think that it can't happen to your family. Like, I didn't know half the stuff that, you know, is actually true about my family until I watched what my sister went through and mm-hmm. what we went through as a family, you know? And it, it really, her alcoholism and and her addiction to pills really took a heavy toll on all of us because 
we would see her doing good and she'd be getting good and then she'd fall off and then she'd be doing good for a while and then she'd fall off. And then this went on for, for several years, for several years. And it got to one point where I remember ta- I remember my mom was just like, just take her to the rehab, just take her. And I finally, I got in the car with her. We got in a fight about something. And then I remember that was when you hurt your ankle and I felt really bad for you. <laughs> and I was like, I was like in tears. And her and I were both talking about this earlier because this is a moment in my life that I'm probably never going to forget. Um, I'll never forget the feeling that I had because I was so angry at having to bring her there, but I was also so sad having to leave her there. And I was so numb to everything that we, we were going through and everything that, you know, I, that I felt she was putting us through. And... I was just like, I looked up at the receptionist after she went into the bathroom when I dropped her off. And I said, I said, you people good? Like, can you just take her? She's all set because I'm heading out. I'm done. And then Joanne comes out of the bathroom and she's like, where are you going? Because you were like so drunk that you didn't realize that Mm -hmm. you weren't coming back with me. And I think that I was also maybe a little bit scared as well. You know, that's the thing is I, you know, that's where I want to touch upon um, about where, like, what led up to this point. So there was a lot of, you know, underlying mental health issues that led to that. And, you know, there was a lot of depression, like major depression that led up to this. And I think it was, it becomes, and, you know, a lot of people think that people make the choice of doing this, but I think when you aren't, like, I'm not going to say we weren't raised with good coping mechanisms, but I'm going to say that like back, back then mental health wasn't something that is talked about as it is now. And it wasn't something that a lot of people understood. So we were just kind of like, all right, well, you're going to shake it off eventually. You're not going to have that. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's going to go away. It's just, you know, being a teenager, you know? I also think that growing up in an Irish Catholic family where you are raised to not talk about your emotions and not talk about your feelings, I think that that was also deeply embedded within us. That was, I I think that honestly affects like the way that we communicate with people. I know that it definitely affects like the way that I am in relationships because I have a difficult time opening up and like picking up the rug that I've swept everything under to say, Mm -hmm. all right there's nothing beneath the surface here when there really is. I think that there was a lot going on and we were taught to kind of like, and our, and the thing is too, is like our parents were taught that like it, it yeah. was taught behavior. It was like, generational it was generational thing. thing, you know, like, you know, Graham, even going back like generations, they were just taught like shove it down. You don't talk about it. And that kind of forces you to have like a different mentality and, I don't know how I dealt with it. I think I just, I think, to be honest with you, I think I ignored it for so long that then it finally down the line caught up with me and it was devastating. But the way that it caught up with you, with, you know, the the drinking and everything, it was just like, you just want, like, tell me how, how it made you feel to use that as a coping mechanism. Like, what would, what would happen that would trigger you to, like, get in that situation what triggered you I think it was just there were a lot of things that really led me to that place um but I I did grow up with and you know the 
this is like childhood and teenager years. I'm sorry, childhood and adolescence. Um, I dealt with some trauma. Um, and I shouldn't even say dealt with it because I didn't really deal with it. Like, like you said, I ignored it. I swept it under the rug. I pushed it down. And like, even to this day, I deal with like bottling up my emotions. Um, but back then it was so much worse and I didn't know how to cope with the pain that I was feeling. And I didn't know how to escape from it. Like I didn't have the tools that I have today, um, to sort of deal with the pain and at times it would be so overwhelming it felt like I was being suffocated by it like it felt like I was drowning like I couldn't breathe and like you know when you're a kid and you're watching movies and you see you know Michael Douglas pouring himself a snifter of you know whiskey on the rocks you know after having a real rough day at the office you know it's like you know, you think, okay, well, you know, maybe that's, you know, that maybe that'll work. That's the solution. So, you know, your parents have a cabinet of hot liquor right above the refrigerator at, you know, our, our first house. They have that now? Like, no, what? no, not anymore. God, yeah. no. But, like, you remember those cabinets above the refrigerator? Yeah, there was, like, absolute the vodka. Yeah, there was absolute. There was, you know, a couple of. Because Dad, when he worked um, at the warehouse, like, some of his coworkers would give him a box of, you know, a, a particular hot liquor for, like, the holidays or whatever. And it just added up because our parents weren't, you know, hard liquor drinkers. So they just, you know, put it away, whatever. And, you know. We know how I handles Midori. I ended Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Wow. So I ended up just, you know, pouring myself, like, a Dixie cup worth of like whiskey when I was maybe about 12 and you know it burned it was absolutely you disgusting yes I never knew yes. about that that, that was the, my first experience with alcohol um my first experience was when I was three in death you know, oh yeah remember I was, we had the glass coffee yes, table and I dumped I was, his beer I was my face. four and I wanted to taste his yeah. beer and he let me take a sip and it was gross but like my first time Mine, I dumped like all over full, my face a full beverage was, you know, when I was 12 and I had that Dixie cup full of, you know, whiskey and I thought it was gross and it burned. But after a couple of minutes, like I started to feel almost like it was like a sigh of relief, like, <sighs> and all of a sudden I was very relaxed. Um, Does the stress like, did the stress leave your body? It really did. It really did. And I, like, I felt a little bit silly after that. Um, and I don't remember much after that. I don't remember, you know, if I went and did my homework or whatever, but it's just like that specific memory is what comes to me when I think about like when I first, you know, started that relationship with alcohol. Um, it didn't become a regular thing after that, you know, it, it wasn't until yeah. maybe I was 16 and going into Southie and, you know, not getting carded at bars when we would go visit, you know, relatives or whatever, um, you know, but when I was maybe around 18 was when it became a pretty regular thing for me. I remember when I, and you were dating, like, what's his face? And I won't say his name, but like, we were looking for you. Ginger? Yeah, we couldn't find you anywhere. And I was like, where the, I was like, where the hell did this chick go? And you were like so teeny, teeny, tiny, skinny at that point. <laughs> so like, I'm like, where did she go? So like, you couldn't handle your liquor because you were like three and a half pounds. So <laughs> and um, 
That's for sure. We I, we go and we find you behind this bureau, face down, cast out, because you couldn't handle the... Uh, I mean, trust me, I when I say you couldn't handle it, I don't think I'd be able to handle it either, you know? I gave up liquor for 40 days, and then I was trying to shoot moonshine with the Portuguese men at, you know, my ex's... <laughs> at my ex's like Easter celebration so trust me I can't handle my liquor either but I think that was the night I was going shot for shot with Tabari I think I did a little one oh, too yeah. many oh yeah Ooh. yeah I, I think too when you're when you're in that situation too like when you're younger in that in those situations especially when you're like still a teenager like it's almost like you want to prove that like you can handle it you almost right. want to prove that like i can do it drinks the guy under the table you know because yeah. that's kind of like a badge of honor when you're that age see for me i never did because i was afraid and i was always just like well mom and dad said i can't do that so i i was afraid and i was afraid to like not only that but i mean we saw what happened when I smoked marijuana and came home and walked into a wall and then I got me and Rita in trouble and we got grounded and that wasn't fun. What about so. the time that uh, Rita and I got stoned out of our trees and we like strolled into your confirmation party and us oh my god out at us in front of everybody yeah so my my confirmation party when you're i don't know if everybody listening is catholic but when you're you know you come of age when you're like 16 17 it's like the end of your like catholic education where you then are confirmed as a catholic so you go to um church they do this blessing with this oil the bishop does it and you know you basically confirm your faith and you deny Satan and all of that. Um, so it's a really big deal in the Catholic religion. Mm-hmm. So when that, the night of that party, you know, Joanne decided to cruise around, smoke a bone <laughs> and uh, walks in smelling of like, I, I, I just reeked. You, you smelled I like reeked. Cheech and Chong's Kai. You really did. <laughs> so when That's you, true. when you walked in and I remember like being so upset because like literally, but you have to understand that, at this point in time, like, this was, like, a long time ago. Marijuana was not as acceptable as it is now. Mm-hmm. Like, if that happened nowadays, people would be like, why did they get up and leave? What uppity, you know, jerks to, like, get up and leave. But, like, back then, like, weed was not legal. And, like, it was not – and when I say that, people like – People looked down on you if you smoked weed back then. People too. thought like, you were, like – thought you were, like, a pothead or, you know, a, a shit bum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people thought you were a shit bum. But it was fun. We were so, having you know, fun yeah, with them. Yeah, you had a couple of co- – I remember being very, very upset at the time that you guys walked in and did that because it, like, ruined my potty and everybody left. I, I apologize. They, it, it's water under the bridge at this point, you know, because now we can look back on it and laugh. Yeah. Because, honestly, like – I look back. I look back, and I'm like, it really wasn't like I didn't really need to have like a big, you know, soiree. You know, it's just that was one of those situations where I started to get resentful of you because I remembered like shortly after that, um, you turned. I think it was just shortly before that you had turned 18, mm-hmm. and the rules didn't apply to you anymore. And I had just got grounded. I, I for think two- I had started re- really rebelling yeah. against mom and dad at that point. Also, like yeah. It was more or less just like a F you, leave me alone kind of thing. I'm going to do what I want. And, you know, I think that that was probably the wrong mindset to have because I think having that mindset is kind of what propelled me more towards, 
you know, that lifestyle. It was more of a thing, too, where, like, I started to get resentful of you because I, because not only because I was grounded, but because it was just, like, I'm grounded, and now it's like, well, you know, nothing we can do. She's 18 now, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, so you're telling me this was bullshit the whole time about getting in trouble and all the shit that I ever got in trouble. Like, that was when I realized you were bullshitting us all these years. I, I could have called you bluff, like, a long time ago. So that's when I'm like, man, I got hosed. I don't know when you when your drinking increased after that. Um, I think when I was maybe around 18 or 19 when Ginger and I had started to get really serious. Um, and he was living in, um, like, off campus in a college apartment or, sorry, college house with maybe three or four other people. Um, and it was just partying nonstop. And, like, I wasn't really a big drinker at that point. I was kind of more of a pothead. But because I was so head over heels for Ginger... And like and, I, and I wanted mind, to spend time. Bear in mind, him. you're young at this point. Like, yeah, you're you're a teenager. This, he's my first love, like the first guy I ever really loved and cared for, and could really see myself building a future with. Like that was him, and he was absolutely my universe. He consumed my every thought, my every action. You know, and I'm not saying that he forced me to do these things. Like, he absolutely did not. He is not at all at fault for what happens to me or what I went through during or after my relationship with him. It was more like I was so consumed with my love for him that I wanted to spend more time with him. And in order to do that, I had to go to these parties. And I felt like I had to drink and keep up. And, and this was more my mind than him telling me anything because he never forced anything on me. I just, I wanted to have a good time. I wanted to be with my boyfriend, you know, because he, he was my, my sun, my stars, my moon at that point, you know, and he was everything. And I think everybody can relate to that to a certain point too, being like, you know, 18, being young. Cause that's how I was with John, you know, like me and John were like, thick as thieves we were like together constantly and the environment we were in was a lot different because I feel like he had just experienced so much life already but I do know that like the situations you were in it was like heavy drinking it was like partying and doing all this mm -hmm. stuff because it's like you get to this age where you're like oh this is cool now that we can do all this stuff we, you know let's have a crack at it here is where things got fuzzy after the, you know, pot, the potting, the constant going off the, you know, rails. I never noticed how bad it was because I was so sheltered and I was still at home. You'd be staying over, you know, in, in Providence and stuff with Ginge. And uh, one morning I got a post-it on my nightstand and it was like, sorry, how to take your car. I'll explain later. And it was from mom. And I was like that's weird. I don't I wonder what happened. And at the time dad was working nights and I remember going into the kitchen and I was like, uh, any, anybody want to tell me why Ma has my car right now? And why? I like, cause of course, like I'm a, I'm a dick because I think I, I think you were 21 at that point. Cause I remember being like 18 cause I had a job and stuff. I'm like, uh, anybody going to drive me to work today? Because like, what the fuck? Like, obviously I didn't say what the fuck to dad. Cause that would have got me like a backhand back then. Mm -hmm. Um, still would. Not, well, not a backhand from dad. You know, I, I'm exaggerating. I never, actually, dad never hit me in the face. Um, I got, I got my fair share of spanks from mother, mother and mother and father. But anyway, I digress. So I go into the kitchen. I say to dad, Hey, you know, like what gives, why do I not have a car today? Like I have to go to work. And thankfully 
after he told me this story, I got a call on my cell phone that there was there wasn't enough clients and I didn't have to come in for the day. And thank God because it was really bothering me and affecting me. Dad goes, "Hey, Joanne crashed the Diamante last night into a fence. She was drunk. She just you know." And I'm thinking, and as soon as they seen that, I'm like, "Oh my God, she died!" And I'm like my my heart dropped. And he goes, "No, she's alive. She's okay." And I remember being so mad at you. Like, how could you be that stupid? Like you, we, we have a cousin who died from from a drunk driving accident. So I was sitting there like, how the fuck could you do this? You know, like this is somebody that like, like you named your daughter after this after this person. You know, she was part of our family. You know, she was one of our cousins. Her name was Lauren, and you know, I didn't remember that much about her because I was only three. But Joanne had very significant like special memories with her that just to this day is still so special to her. And it's why she named her her firstborn Lauren. So for me, I'm sitting there like, why would she be that fucking stupid? And but at this point, I also did not know what it was like to go out and drink with people. I didn't understand at that point. So I, of course, I was like upset about it. I was angry, and I was like, why the fuck would you do that? You just screwed up everything. Like, why would you throw your future away? Like, we come from such a good family. We don't do this kind of shit. And that's where a lot of people get caught up and get wrong because you, no matter what kind of family you come from, this shit can affect you. So here's where I want to turn it over to you, Joanne, because I want to hear your aspect of it, you know, because I don't think anybody can beat the shit out of you, beat the shit out of you, you know, with saying, exactly. Thank you for completing that. So, (laughs) yeah, um, I don't remember a whole hell of a lot after the accident. Um, my do you remember it happening? Spotty. I do, I do. And I remember what led up to it. Um, I was at Antonio's house with Ginger and a couple of other people, um, you know, and Antonio had gotten like a mini keg. So we were drinking and I was just pounding beers left and right, you know, just throwing them back. Um, and it got to the point where I was so loaded, I dropped a glass on Antonio's floor and his girlfriend, Catherine came over, cleaned up the glass, wiped up the beer, cleaned off my blouse. Cause I'd spilt it all over myself. Um, Catherine said to Ginger, you know, I think that maybe should take her home. And he, and you know, at this point I'd embarrassed Ginger more times than I care to remember because I was drunk and, you know, doing stupid things or puking in public or whatever. Um, and he was really fed up with me at that point. So he was really pissed off and he's like, fine. And I had left my car at his house. So we drove, he drove us from Antonio's back to his house. And I, um, he was so mad at me. He slammed the door of the car, just walked right into his house, didn't give me a kiss goodnight, nothing. So I got in the Diamante, and I was hurting, like, emotionally. Um, I was sad, but I was also really pissed off because I didn't understand why he was so mad. Like, I didn't really see a problem at that point because I think that I, I was just blind to it. You know, I, I wasn't as self-aware then as I am now. Um, so I had borrowed mom's car and I got in the Diamante and I was taking back roads home because I figured, you know, if I drove on the highway, I didn't want to get pulled over by a statey, um, because the back roads were less populated by police. Um, so I figured that it was, 
you know, less of a chance of catching the DUI. But because I was so mad, like, I had a pretty lead foot, and I was doing maybe 60 in a 30-mile-an-hour zone, and I took a turn on, like, probably two wheels. I took it so fast. Um, and the car spun out, and it hit a tree. I was probably going faster than 60. I was probably doing 80 and a 30, to be honest with you, to cause that much damage. Um, and the, after the car spun out, it hit a tree and a fence backwards, and it pushed the trunk of the Diamante right up to, like, the back of the front seats of the car. And I didn't know that at the time. I was so drunk that... You know, I was trying to restart the car and put it in drive and drive away, you know, thinking like, oh, shit, you know, but I couldn't get it to move. And then I tried to open the driver's side door and it wouldn't open. And I tried to open the passenger door and it wouldn't open. And at that point, I started to panic. So I put both feet through the passenger side window and crawled out the passenger side so window. So did you break it? I did, yeah. I, I kicked it out. And... I crawled out the passenger side window and just sat on the sidewalk sobbing and people had come out of their house in their pajamas and stuff and one lady was in her nightgown and she sat down next to me and it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay and her husband was calling 911 and I was like you don't understand my mom's gonna kill me like forget about the fact that you know I could have been injured thankfully I wasn't but I, I was more concerned at that point with what mom was gonna say what was mom gonna do Oh, I I, I was terrified. Well, you know, we had the fear of God in us from our parents from a very young age, you know, that you don't, you don't cross certain lines. To witness this as your sister, like, when Dad told me that, all I could think of was, like, he was so calm telling me the story that I was like, you're, you're calm. This ain't good, man. <laughs> this ain't good for Joanne. And I don't know where you went or where you were. I ended up being taken by ambulance to Caritas Norwood Hospital emergency room. At the scene of the accident, the cop was asking me to say the alphabet backwards. And Dude, I can't even do that. I, I, I did it swimmingly. I was like blackout drunk, and I did it swimmingly. Perfect. Not even a hesitation. I, 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 I couldn't do that to this day, but I did it then. I could not do that. He, he insisted on me getting a blood alcohol test at the hospital. And, you know, if, for anyone who is listening who's had a DUI or knows someone who's had a DUI, um, the blood alcohol test would have been an automatic charge for me. I would have been handcuffed and whisked off to the nearest county jail. But once we get to the emergency room, um, like they were taking my vitals and I told the nurse, I was like, I need to call my lawyer. I need to call my lawyer right now. Because at that point, I had been working for this amazing, amazing, wonderful guy um, who had name. a law firm in Boston. Yeah, I'm not going to say his name. Um, he he was he, very good he's about a, he's a tr He was a tremendous guy. Is a tremendous guy. I'm sorry. He is a tremendous guy. Um, and I called him from called him on his cell phone from the emergency room at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I said, I need help. I was like, I'm in big trouble. And I kind of explained the situation to him, and he asked me to put the police officer who escorted me to the hospital on the phone, so I did. And he told him, she's not taking, you're not giving her a blood alcohol test. Uh, we we refused that. And, um, so I ended up getting, at that time, I ended up getting charged with reckless endangerment, driving to endanger, negligent operation of a motor vehicle, and given a court date and all that stuff. Um, I was so scared for you. Like, as, uh, as disappointed as I was and upset as I was, 
I do realize that like as 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 mess as fucked up as it was of the situation that you put yourself in, I also looked at it like my sister could go to jail for this and it's like you think about it and I'm like I know what a good person you are and what a good heart you have so it's like to me I was scared but I was also kind of, I was also kind of upset that you know that I made such a stupid decision I was upset that you made such a stupid decision but I was also upset that you got charged with like all this all this stuff and then it basically got like expunged well, when we got to court, I pled guilty and um, because Jimmy had negotiated with the DA a plea deal for me, um, I pled guilty and the judge granted us a continued without a finding. And when you're granted a continued without a finding, it means that you have to be on your absolute best behavior um, with no police encounters or anything like that for um, a certain amount of time. And for me, it was six months. So I had to stay out of trouble for a whole six months and then it, the charges would be dismissed. Um, and for some reason... Which is a very good thing, and I'm thankful that that happened, because I know that nowadays, to get a job, people do background checks on you, and that probably would have affected you. Yeah. I, at the time, I was mad that it got expunged, because I was like, I was like, I want her to know, like, the consequences of this, and, like, you know, have to live with the... But also, I was in a different mindset. I was young back then, and I didn't... I was much younger than you, so mm-hmm. I didn't understand... And I wanted you to carry that with you. But I honestly think the emotional toll that you have carried with you, even right now, like, that I can see on your face, this is done and over with. Yeah. And you've become such a better person. I appreciate that. But we're, we're still not done with the story and where this goes. But we're just trying to go through, like, the timeline of what happened and what led up to this mm-hmm. and then who my sister is now. Mm-hmm. So you went through that situation. Even to this day, I think... I still carry some shame about it. Like, I don't beat myself up nearly as heavily as I used to. Um, Thank God for AA and the 12 Steps and having a great sponsor and some really amazing mentors and, you know, a very supportive family. I don't carry nearly the shame that I did, but I, I do carry, you know, maybe a small pocketbook full of shame that, you know, I, I tend to beat myself with time to time. Because I know the pain and agony that I kind of, well, not kind of, but that I did cause you and mom and dad and even Grammy and Papa, man, like, I, I don't mean to the be support that Grammy and Papa gave me, like, like when I went Grand, to treatment. And, if and if I could what? just say this really quickly, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. I know you're getting emotional and I, I want to just emphasize the fact that my grandmother had a huge impact on you. My uh, grandmother passed away in 2016, you know, just a little bit around my birthday. And then our other grandmother passed away right around Joanne's birthday. But my grandmother was an alcoholic and she understood the pain that Joanne was going through. A recovering alcoholic. Re- yeah, she was a recovering she, alcoholic. She died with all, um, a little over 40 years sober. And, and she did it cold turkey. She did it on her own because she was a strong-willed, amazing woman um we come from a line of bad bitches man yeah but anyways carry on with what you were saying i just wanted to make sure that that i emphasized after after multiple attempts at getting sober like maybe seven different detoxes i'd gone to at that point but that's the thing is back then there was like
like no program that was good enough. They would like basically have you for seven in days. In a psych ward, basically. Yeah. And they would yeah. send you to the psych ward. And it's like, it wasn't good enough treatment. It wasn't focused on like, okay, this I, I these are your additions. But I, well, I don't think at that point I was ready to really give it up. Like I, I was in denial so much. But at that point, like. You have to be ready. I think that's yeah. the thing a lot of people don't understand is like. You, like, it, it's so hard to watch your loved one go through this. It really is. And then it also takes an emotional toll on you. Like, this took such a huge toll on me that I don't feel it anymore. And I don't really remember what it was like. And I think that's my brain's way of protecting me from it. But it changed me in a way that, like, I express emotion differently than most people. Like, I don't really show that much emotion. And... It's because I got so used to, like, sitting back and, like, protecting you and, like, what you were going through. And because of, like, Graham and her, like, being such a good support to you, I feel like Graham always, like, checked you, too, and, like, kept you on your toes. Yeah, and, like, yeah. She but, wouldn't like, go she understood what I was going through, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was very kind to me, and she was, like, the shoulder that I would cry on. Um, and... Uh, the last detox and treatment that I went through, by the grace of God, you know, when I was at Edwina Martin House, God bless those women, man. They, they're amazing over there. Um, but when I was at Edwina Martin, and transitions, like, right before you came to visit me at transitions, like, yeah. you hadn't spoken a word to me. And I, let's Dad say this, hadn't too. Spoken a word to you me. had gone in and out of these different places. I would not come visit you any of right, those times. right. Like, I was, I didn't know how to deal with it and I didn't have an outlet for it because of the fact that I was resentful. I was resentful of the fact that like my parents held me to such a different standard that was like much higher and I would get more punishment and more, you know, and then it got, it got to a point where my and dad like just kind of let me go and they were like, we got to focus on Joanne, but we know she's going to make the right decisions. So we get to really put all of our, you know all of our focus on Joanne. So I, you know, and, and this is a, but I want, I want to give an honest portrayal of how siblings feel and how you feel. Like I really felt like mom and dad, like put everything into you. And I, I don't really feel like dad had much to do with it because he was really angry with me. And like that, like I was trying to say that last treatment that I went through, like that last, those last facilities, because it was like detox and then a 30-day program and then six weeks at transitions and then I did four months at Edwina Martin. That last stretch of treatment, dad wasn't speaking to me. You weren't speaking to me. I think mom was only half speaking to me, but because... Well, at first we weren't, we weren't allowed to, but I remember mom being able to finally contact you. And I remember her saying to me, Hey, do you want to go see Joanne? Um, in this transitions place she's been away for you know a month or so now she's realizing the impact of what she's done i've been away for about two months at that point oh two months okay so two months at that point it took you a while to talk to me but like i was so i was grammy was there i feel like we're jumping around but i want to go back to the day because this was a really difficult day for me i want to i want to talk about the day that i found you and that was like, oh, man, <laughs> this is, I, I hate, I hate going back to this because I, I hate drudging it up for you and I hate drudging it up this, for me. This was basically the catalyst to this my was, last yeah. 
this was the final time that you the final time that you went through this I'll never ever forget it because it was something that I just feel like was divine intervention and I was luckily I, I just feel like everything when when people say everything happens for a reason and everyone thinks yeah right whatever it just happened to be a coincidence this didn't happen to be a coincidence I was very fortunate enough to have a job when I was in my early 20s working from home and this job afforded me the ability to be home so that I could you know I felt like I was babysitting you sometimes because I'd be checking and I'd be reporting back I was I had a snitch on you I'm sorry but I you know I <laughs> all's forgiven you know this was, a, well, this was a serious this was your health this was about your health and about like the well your well-being so to me I was like I gotta I, if I see her drinking I'm gonna say something and like my favorite part would be when I would catch you drinking and you'd be like that's a skunked beer from six months ago meanwhile it's like an ice cold fresh beer that like anybody would crack open and be like it's a marvelous day <laughs> but like that you know there there was that situation um so that particular day Joanne's in in bed you know after a while my mom goes hey I've been watching TV yeah watching TV in bed and my mom calls me and says hey I can't get in touch with Joanne can you go upstairs real quick and just you know wake her up tell her I I need to talk to her I had I had and, at that point drunk I think two pints of vodka and yes. I mixed it with like a handful of Ativan and there was a and bottle I, I of wanna, wine I do want to say that I was not trying to kill myself I was simply trying to numb myself and by that point I'd built up such a tolerance that it took so much more alcohol and so much more pills to get me to that point of numbness like that comfortably numb state of mind and that's when I, w I remember walking in and being like hey hey you gotta call mine at first you were like huh yeah yeah I will so I, I went back downstairs and I was like yeah she's gonna call you I just woke her, woke her up she's fucking sleeping again of course she's in her stupa so you know she'll call you my mother basically like when she had me wait try to wake joanne she's up damn saint, joanne yeah woman. she she's is saint. she never called my mother back after i tapped her and said you need to call mom and then i finally go upstairs again and i'm like of course i'm pissed off at that point because she hasn't called my mother and i start you know i I, sh I just shake her arm and i'm like dude get up you need to call mom this is bullshit ma's already asked for you to call so i'm shaking her arm and it's like dead weight and then I'm shaking her as a person, and she's just, like, so dead weight. Dead weight. And then finally... Eyes rolled back in my head. Yeah, her eyes rolled back in her head, and then I finally put my hand under her nose, and she wasn't breathing. Now, by the grace of God, I had just enrolled in this coding course, and I had just got certified in CPR. So I got this, like, little, this, it's like a clear face mask that they gave us. Yeah. And I, and I put it over your over your mouth and I was do I did like I had a you know you had that giant jacket that you always love to sleep in <laughs> that's what you're called the meat so, cutter's jacket yeah so I had a like I had it a was like so warm you guys it was so warm oh my gosh <laughs> it is what it is I so like I I did CPR for a little bit and then I finally get you breathing mm -hmm. and it's so weird but I was so numb in that situation that like I was able to just calmly right. assess I think that's it. Kind of like when the adrenaline hits you and you're just not thinking, you're just acting. And I was, I just remember being so mad at you for doing this and putting me in this position. How dare you die on us? How dare you do this? But you know what's, <laughs> do you know what's sad is, and I know I've told, I, I know I've said this to you, 
I just, one of the things that really bothers me to this day that I feel so guilty about is the fact that I debated for a minute leaving you there. And that really, like, did I ever tell you that? <laughs> no. Wow. First time I'm hearing that. I, I it was this, it was like a split second. Kind of cuts. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I don't mean to cut you deep like that. But I debated just saying, you know what? We won't have to ever go through this again. But you know what I thought of? How am I ever gonna look Lauren in the eye and watch her go through life, going through her milestones without you? And I was like, there's no. You can't do that. You can't just let's. You know, let's let's try our damnedest here. And luckily. You know, I loved Grey's Anatomy, so that's why I got into this thing. And now you love Grey's Anatomy. Yes. So I go yes. and I, I gave you, I, I did CPR. I got you breathing. We And I finally called and I called the ambulance. And here's where, here's where the dark humor comes in, people. Because this is where, <laughs> well, we got a really sick sense of humor in our family. I, by the way, like, I'm, I'm so sorry that I just had to admit that to you on the podcast. No, no, it's, no. I'm glad that you did because, like, I, I just want to say, like, back then, had I known that, I like, I, I probably would have let you leave me to die because, like, I, I was at that point, I had no will to live. Like I my really didn't. my state of mind was just so numb and so hurt, and I was just because like, you'd put up with it for years. You, but, you and mom and dad had put up with it for years, and you'd given up hope. I think at that point, it it was like that was a good like ten years that you know, I want to no, it wasn't ten years. It was probably like I would say probably eight years. And it, it was so, it was so much to deal with and it was so much stress. And I just felt like I, I felt helpless and I didn't know what to do. And I was like, we're going to just keep, this is just going to be Groundhog Day. We're going to live this on repeat. And I was, I got to a point where I was like so numb by it that I was like, I should just leave her here and let her pass. And then I thought about like what that would do to mom and dad. And I thought what about that would what it eventually would, do to you, you know? Yeah, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to, I would, oh my God, I wouldn't have made it. I would have had to, I would have had to. You know, I don't, I don't, well, I don't know what I would have done. I, I do want to leave a footnote here and just say that Lauren was at daycare when all this was yes. going down. She wasn't being neglected or anything. Yeah. She was at daycare when all this was going down. Yeah. So. Lauren was at daycare and, you know, I will say this, that you were like the most loving mom regardless, but here's the thing. Like, that, I think that little girl saved my life, man. Like. I think people people tend to this is another thing though that's like really misconstrued is people tend to judge people who have children and they're like, How could you do that to your kids? But it's like you wanna be the best parent you can to your kids and when you're feeling that numb and like you're feeling that like shit, you feel like, All right, if I numb myself, then I can try to be the best parent to my kid. Like is that is that the mentality? I think so, yeah. I mean at that that point, you're not. When you're at the point that I had reached, you're not thinking about how it's affecting your kid or how it's affecting your parenting. You're thinking about how it's gonna numb the pain. It's gonna. It's gonna block those, you know, traumatic memories from popping forward, and then you can focus on being a parent. Then you can focus on being a good mom and making your kid happy and playing with your kid. You're not thinking about how you're talking to your kid with slurred words or how you're playing with your kid stumbling all over yourself. Like, you're not thinking about those things at that point. Um, but let's get back yeah. to the dark humor. Yeah, let's get back to the dark humor. I gotta say, this Wait, is my Joanne and I go part. off on tangents a lot. Like, well, this is the thing about her and I. Like, 
We tell stories in the strangest ways. We can start with one story, break into another story, and then go back to the first story, and then start a third our story. Our stories have layers. Then, yeah, They're our like stories. Onions. Yeah, they they have lay. They are like onions. They have layers. <laughs> so like, and then we'll circle back to like the third story at the very at the very end, like after we haven't even got to the middle of it, and people are like, you "What do you really talking have about? to know us in order to keep up with exactly. our storytelling?" So I apologize, folks. I, I digress. We'll we'll go back to this. I, this I got, back then it wasn't funny, but now it is. Like I'm so glad that we can laugh about this now because it's absolutely. Hysterical. And this is like the shitty part, dude. I could have, I honestly, this particular day, I, this guy, like, was fully, like, within his rights to arrest me. Like, I, I fully in his rights. So I call, you know, after I did the CPR and everything and that I, work. that I thankfully learned, it did work did because, it? well, yeah, because I, I mean, thought, hey, hey, you fucking are, man. Like, <laughs> it worked. Well, I thought that the, the EMT guy got me breathing again. It was no, you. he was, he got you a sensible pair of shoes. <laughs> so here's the thing. So I got you, I got you breathing a little bit and you were like, oh, whatever. Like, and I remember you had got up and like thrown up the tacos. And I remember dad saying, if you oh, hadn't yeah. thrown up those tacos, you would have died. So, you know, ta hashtag taco Tuesday. <laughs> um, this is why, this is why we have dark humor because in our family, like, I know it sounds really messed up, but this humor is how we get really how we cope with. Yeah, this is how we, we get through things. So we laugh about it. We're gonna get back to the part where I go, you know, we get you breathing, and, and I called nine one one, and I was just so numb when I called nine one one. I was like, yeah, my sister is, you know, in a Basically drunken dead. haze, and you know, she was just not breathing, and I now she's breathing again. I did CPR. Can we get somebody over here? So we get a couple of medics over, and luckily, like they. There, you know, I have to say, I really, really appreciate the Randolph the, Fire Department. The Randolph Fire Department. The Randolph Police Department, man. Yeah. They're, the, they're the greatest. Yeah. They really are. You're a good person. <laughs> Shout out to Steve Morse. Thank you for kicking off my path to recovery. You're the best. We love you. So anyways, so, <laughs> so the medics come. So the medics come and it happens um, where, you know, Joanne had... A million different shoes all over the floor. She had like well, this. Before, before I got the shoes on was when he was asking me the question. No, no, no but here's what I, I'm trying to set the scene. Okay. So let me set the scene here. <laughs> so I'm setting the scene where you walk into my sister's room and there's all sorts of, you know, shoes there that, you know, are right by the bed. And for some reason, so. Whenever I used to get drunk, I would put on like the highest of high heels. Like. I'm talking six inch, seven inch stilettos. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> and they would have such a dip in the arch that it was like impossible. Like it was damn near impossible to walk in sober. So this guy, literally, this is, this is the most hilarious thing to me. So he goes into the, he comes into the, the house and he's like, Hey, where is she? And I'm like, Oh, she's down the hall over there. She's laying down in bed. She's, um, you know, She's, she's, she's giving me a hard time. I'm going to stay over here. And then I finally actually came into the room and he let me in the room because he wanted me to, you know, be there so that in case she didn't know her surroundings. And I'm like, yeah, she's going to know me. She's going to get pissed off. And uh, this is where it, it comes to the point where, like, there's also a cop there at this point. So this cop apparently had never, he had never been in this situation. God bless him. But I thank him for not arresting me. She still, you know, she sits up in bed and he says, hey, what's your name? And she says her full name. 
He asks her, hey. <laughs> and he goes, what's your birthday? And she gives him their birthday. Then he says, who's the president of the United States? And she goes, Osama Bin Laden. <laughs> I meant to say Obama. I meant to say Barack Obama. Barack, yeah, Barack Obama and Osama Bin Laden. They do sound a little Obama familiar. Obama and Osama. Like, it's easy to get confused when you're shithouse. I mean, when you're shithouse. I mean, I was stone cold sober when I mistook Jack Frost for Robert Frost. So <laughs> I can't even, you know, I can't even say anything. This but it was so fast. We, we laugh about that in my family a lot. This is the part I want to circle back to with the shoes. So Joanne, get, get, he's like, why don't we get you, you know... We, we get you checked out. She's like, okay. So she gets up. She's got this, you know, giant jacket on. She decides that she's going to get up and put on these, like, Pink giant. snake skin yeah, stilettos. These giant, open giant toe. heels. <laughs> yeah, open toe. And the medic, the medic leans into her shoe tree, which the shoe tree was full of beer cans, by the way. So she leans it. And so he's shaking it. And he, you can hear them just jingling. <laughs> And then he pulls out a pair of ballet flats, and he's like, "All right, uh, why don't we put on? Why don't we put on these shoes? These look a little bit more comfortable, don't you think?" And like he had like a sense of humor about him that kind of like helped the situation and like helped her not like rip my head off at that point. <laughs> so then, uh, this is the part that Dad likes to laugh about. Yeah. When uh, so they all you know going ahead out, they get out the door, and. Uh, I don't, okay, you, you, unless you're in this situation, you don't know, like, what it feels like, so I remember, you know, they're going outside, the cops there and everything, and I'm just like, all right, bye, thanks for coming, and shut the door and go downstairs. I call my mother and I say, hey, Ma, you know, they came to get Joanne, she was, you know, all sorts of messed up, that's why she didn't call you back, she was all messed up, you know, from the drinking. She was unconscious. She, I found, I found two vodka bottles, I found this, I found that, and, um, my mother's like, well, do you know what hospital they're taking her to? I'm like, well, shit, I didn't even think to ask. Hang on, Ma. Let me put you down. You know, because back then, people had landlines. So I put the landline down, and they're getting you situated in the ambulance. They get the side door open or whatever. And they're like, oh, you know, I was like, what hospital are you taking her to? And they said the hospital, which I'm not, I'm not going to mention which one it was. They said the hospital they were taking her to. And then Joanne, Joanne is sitting up and she le- like leans I towards the door. I don't want you to come. I, you know, I don't want you to even come with me. I don't want you there. So then I start getting, because I'm like sitting here, like trying to get her situated. I'm like, bitch, I just saved you a life. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know what? You're an ungrateful person. You've put us through enough. You have put us through enough already. And I'm yelling. You're like screaming, foaming yeah. at the mouth with anger. I was so angry. So the cops, I remember. So the, this is the part. Yeah, the cop starts holding me back. And um, I whacked his arm. <laughs> you assaulted a police officer. I did. I did. I did not mean to, but I was very... I, I think he understood where I was very angry. Because then he, like... After the fact, like, because I said, I said, you know what, blah, blah, blah. And he starts grabbing both my arms so that I can't jump in there and get physical with her, which <laughs> I wouldn't have. But I think that he's probably seen enough situations where, you know, people right, have done I'm that. Sure so, he's been to enough yeah. domestic. So I'm sure, he, I'm sure he knows that. So then, like, all of a sudden you leave and he goes, you know, this, they just can't help it, you know. Like, you just, you have to. And I'm like, oh. I'm like, and he said, but then he said something to me that was like, that, I don't know what he what said. A good but, guy. 
no, it, he said something to trigger me and got me very upset. And I said, you know what? You don't know what this is like. You don't know what she's put us through. Maybe he did know what it was like. Because I'm pretty sure that's why he didn't arrest me, because he knew how hurt and upset I was. But, you know, I thank him for that because, you know, I didn't I didn't hit him, you know, I didn't hit him hot. I was just, I pushed his hand away from me. Like, I had a friend who had a neck brace on who was on the ground, and they told her she was resisting arrest. She's like, how am I resisting arrest? Oh but anyway, I digress. So Joanne goes off to, you know, get treatment and everything. And this was the fine. This was like the final, the final point detox. of all. Yeah, because yeah, I had really hit rock bottom by that point. And I think I really knew it. You know, I knew that this had to be it for me. But you know what, though? Like, it was so hard to, like, watch you go through that. And it, it, was, was, and it was a lot harder to to give it up to like I went through almost a grieving process really because at that point alcohol and drugs had really become my best friend you know that it was you know my best friend my lover you know everything because I had depended on it so much to get that comfort and you know like I said that comfortably numb mindset and feeling was something that I had become accustomed to so I have I had to go through a grieving process really I had to go through the seven stages of grief just to you know part ways with that relationship that I had built with drugs and alcohol this is the weird thing is the fact that when you really think about it I found my sister dead basically pretty much like half dead and then once they left Joanne do you know what I did I went back downstairs and finished my day at work. <laughs> no, but, like, think about how fucked up that is, that, like, I could just go back downstairs and say, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna finish my day and just, like, that's because how... You, re you reach a point where you're just fed up and... And you just... sweep it under the rug and you just have to, you're taught to just keep going. And it's, like, that's re that really stunts people emotionally. Like, when you, when you do that kind of stuff to yourself and you're like, all right... Like, I used to think I was such a strong person for doing that, and a lot of people thought I was, but honestly, like, I feel like, because I feel like emotionally I'm like Curly Sue. I feel like, that's what I feel like we are, like, we're both Curly Sue emotionally, where, like, the big shit is not a problem, and then the little shit will, like, break us down. You know, she could, right. she could, she could spell, like, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, but she couldn't spell cat, and she'd start crying. Yes. That's us. It, that's us emotionally. Yeah. But... This is the thing. When I finally, you know, you finally went through all this stuff. And like you said, two months later, you were in transitions. And I came to visit you. And I will never forget that picture that we had took together. Because we took that picture. And I was so happy to see you. And I was so happy to see you doing good. And I think one of the major things was, like, you got to see people in there who were, like, much worse off than I was. People who were, you know, performing oral sex for chips you know in the laundry room and i'm sorry i don't mean to laugh just so yeah i but laugh it's, i laugh when i'm uncomfortable but it's, it's very very sad like the things it that you is, encounter yeah. and the things that you see but i remember when you were you know you were in transitions they were waiting for you to get a bed at edwina martin you finally get a bed at edwina martin and i think that place did you a lot of good oh my gosh if it wasn't for edwina martin house man i i would not be here like, I learned so much about myself and so much about how to live life without alcohol or drugs from being in that house. Like, I owe everything to those women. You know, Donna, Judy, I love you guys. Uh, I wouldn't be here without you. Um, and, you know, I, I, owe, I really owe them my life. I really do. 
you know, I, I owe my life to a lot of people, obviously, especially you, but, you know, it, a lot of people... I don't people feel like you owe me anything, though. ...significant roles within my process to recovery. Um, you know, Lenny at Gosnell taught me about progress, not perfection, because by nature, I'm a huge perfectionist, and if I don't get something 100%, I get mad at myself, and with by Lenny teaching me it's about progress, not perfection, I learned that in recovery, it's the baby steps that matter. It's those, it's those little things, those small accomplishments that build up to something amazing, you know, and it's because of all of the little things that I learned along the way that I'm able to say that, you know, in April next year, I'll be celebrating a decade of recovery. And, and, I, and I wouldn't be here without any of those people. Just to put it out there, you and you know this too, I used to get very, like, annoyed that we, that we would have a cake for you every year. Did you? I would be like... Why? Because Mar, I, this is the thing. This is why I got so resentful of mom and dad because, like, they would downplay my accomplishments and I wouldn't get a kid. And, like, I'm just being – I'm being honest here because I'm sure a lot of people's siblings feel this way. And I don't – honestly, now that I – now that I see the – like, now that I've been through it and it's been many years, now I want you to have a cake. I want to roll out the red carpet because it's fucking, like, hell to be an addict. It is fucking hell to get out of bed every day and do all the shit that you need to do to get to be supported. Like, it is it, – it is just – it takes everything in you on a daily basis so to celebrate that and commemorate it that is a huge fucking deal at the time i didn't realize that like i think the like the first the first like i think after like three I, years i went through hell just to get to did. that first year that first that the first year and maybe even the second year were the absolute hardest like you had to just keep trucking, keep putting one foot in front of the other with just like that goal of that one year medallion in your mind. Like every day that you get up, like, you know, I've got another day sober, I've got another day sober and just know that, you know, if you keep putting those days together, eventually you're going to get there. But this and is, you can get there. You can. Honestly, like it's a fucking miracle. I never thought in a million years that you would be able to be here 10 years later sober and being the fucking awesome person that you are like we have our ups and downs but i think you and i are much closer than we were a while ago but i want to clarify what i mean when i said i was resentful of the the cakes and everything because i want i really want to let you know what i what i discovered and what i learned how i grew and evolved in basically my learning about this so I want to say after like year, year, you know, three or something, I'm sitting here, I'm like, great, well, because mom and dad were afraid to celebrate, you know, anything that happened for me that was like a good thing, like, oh my God, you got past your coding thing, you had this GPA, you had this, so it was like, it was kind of like, oh, that's great, good for you, that's really great. And then it's like, let's celebrate this, you know, but Joanne's not ruining our lives anymore. Oh, and it's like, so that's how I felt it was. But then once I, once I, you know, kind of grew my mindset and I got around people who kind of gave me a different perspective and said, first of all, that's not what it is. It's the fact that, think about this, you, when somebody is that fragile in their recovery and somebody's doing like so fucking awesome in their life and that recovery person is within that realm, 
think about how fucking detrimental that is to their sobriety if you're celebrating somebody's shit. I, I don't think that my sobriety would have ever been jeopardized. No, but, you know, they've been like, yeah, today's good for you. You've got an awesome GPA. Like, I don't think that that would have thrown me back into the depths of No, but that's the thing is that I understand it now because of the fact that I understand what it means to have that cake now and how, how it, you know, to celebrate and to have, it's a milestone. The past two years, I bought my own cake. <laughs> Jesus. I bought my own cake and celebrated with the kids. I, that, that's the thing is, I don't want to sound like I'm this selfish person. I just want to say this because I'm sure there's a lot of siblings out there that feel this way, that feel like their parents are down or, you know, anybody's, their, their shit's being downplayed when they're trying to do good in life and then there's a celebration for the person who isn't, you know, doing, dr- doing in drinking or, you know, doing pills anymore. And it's like, you have to understand that while you like, this is the one thing I, 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 my takeaway was I grew and I evolved to learn that my accomplishments, I don't need a pat on the back from anybody. I work very hard for the things that I have and I'm grateful for that. But I recognize what a big deal it is for my sister to still be alive, to still be here, to be a mother to her two children, and to be, like, the piece of the puzzle that we need in our family. On that day, April 15th, 2011 is my sobriety date. But every year on April 15th, that's my rebirth day. That's my second birthday. That's the day that I came back to you guys, that I came back to my children. You know, and I celebrate that because I'm grateful to be here. I'm so fucking grateful to be here for my kids, to be here for my family, to be a power of example to other alcoholics and addicts out there that maybe have lost hope because I want them to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. If you just keep going, if you put one foot in front of the other, you're going to see that light and you can reach that light too. It's there for everybody. Hope is not lost for you guys. It, I mean, I promise you it's there. And if, if you need somebody to talk to to help you find that, you know, I'm Joe Elizabeth on Facebook. You can find me and message me, and I'll talk you through it, man. Like, seriously, like, I'm, I'm here to show you the way. I, I, and you know what? I really appreciate that, too, because if you weren't here, you wouldn't be able to dedicate your time to helping other people get through it and showing them. But I think the biggest accomplishment in our family is you like i've grown so much as a person like i'm doing so much like community service work voluntarily not because i have to you know yeah because i want to i really appreciate the fact that you're willing to share this with people because this is such a low point in your life it really was it doesn't define you as a human being like i i don't look back and say well, this is who she is. It's part of who I am, but it, it doesn't set the tone for the rest of my life, you know? Like, I mean, I acknowledge that I had to go through what I went through in order to get where I am. Um, and while I'm not proud of a lot of the things that I said or did or the way that I behaved, I know that if I hadn't gone through those really dark places, then I wouldn't be where I am today. 
I'm grateful for that as well because I know that you know I, I don't think there's a person alive unless they do unless it's someone who's never had a sip of alcohol that didn't make a stupid decision while they were drinking or didn't humiliate themselves or embarrass themselves because God knows I have and some sometimes those moments like beat me up what do, what do you do to get past those moments like do you ever have like do you have flashbacks of something you did and you're like oh god if I could go back in time I'm so embarrassed Absolutely. like um, but those, those are the moments where, you know, I, I give it to God. I give it to God and ask him to lift that shame from me. Um, and when I do that, I feel a lot better because I know that he's there and he, he doesn't want me to feel bad, you know, because he loves me unconditionally and he, he will remove that shame from me if I ask him to. That's really powerful. I, I have to say, Joanne, like, I thought I knew you. <laughs> I, like, I'm not kidding. This I, I want to say this out loud to you, and this is something I've never said to you, which is probably weird that I'm saying it now, but like, it, ju- <laughs> it just occurred to me while we were having this conversation. Before quarantine, like, I thought I knew who you were, and I had you pegged as like this person <laughs> who was just like completely irrational and defensive. Kind of bitchy, a little bit erratic. <laughs> but like, I felt like you couldn't take, you know, criticism, but it's like, I think coming from me, it's like a different thing. It's a different right, feeling. Right. Because like I hold you like up on this pedestal, you know, so like but, for, you when it comes, but I do, man. Like look at all that you've accomplished and where you are in life, you know, like it, it's such a huge deal for me. So you're kind of like a role model and I've got you up on this pedestal. And if I you're do something wrong or say something wrong and you know, you criticize me, like I take it to heart so much harder. And I do, you know, Joe Schmo on the street. You know, he criticizes me, and I'm like, yep, okay. You criticize me, and I'm like, yeah, I bet you I start crying, you know, because, like, I look up to you so much, and it's weird because you're the little sister, but I look up to you way more than I do normal people. That means so much to me. Like, you don't even know. You've worked so fucking hard, man. And like you said, like, they may have downplayed your accomplishments, but I, I never have. Like, I've always held you to a higher standard than I hold myself to because I know that you're just, like, you're this enigma to me. I never, I, like, this is the thing is, at the time, it really, really hurt me that they downplayed it. But now that I'm older and I'm an adult, like, they did the best they could as parents. They did, they really like, did. They did the best they could in a time where, like, And I occupied so much of their attention. You, you, I'm so sorry for that, man. I really But am. you know what, though? It taught me how to, like, stand on my own two feet and make decisions. And, and, you know, and I didn't always make the best decisions. You know, I've been, God knows I've been drunk and made dumb decisions and acted a fool. And, I think everybody has a point or another, just some of us more than others. Yeah, and, you know, I just... I'm I'm just a, I'm just as fallible as anyone else, you know, and that's what how I look at it. I look at myself as a work in progress, as a human being. But it means so much to me to hear that from you. But I wouldn't take I wouldn't take back anything that mom and dad did. I was resentful at the time, but I would not take that back because you needed to have that time. You needed that that focus from mom, like. And they I'm knew so I was going to be okay because there's so many people out there that don't. I think that's what was sad to me when I would come visit you, and they'd be like, "Wow, your family really cares about you." Yeah, and looking back, like that, that broke my heart because I, 
I was in treatment with a lot of people that didn't have the kind of support system that I had. And I think that's when I started to realize just how lucky I was, you know? That's why I, whenever I came to, I would try to be good to them and be, you know, yeah. buddies with them. Because, like, I wanted them to feel like, you know, we were supporting them, too, because... If it, yeah, you shooting the shit with Angelique, you probably made her day, you know? God bless her. Yeah, you know, it's... I just, I, I, that was the one thing I wanted to get out is that I don't, I'm not resentful anymore. I am, I'm in a place where I'm thankful because I grew from that experience. Granted, I had to grow up a little bit faster than other, other kids, but you know what? That experience, like, it, it changed me as a person. It morphed me into who I am today to like really work hard and like, I had to do all this stuff and work hard because there was no other, like, there was no other choice for me. I knew Mar and Dad, I knew Mar, you needed Mar and Dad. You worked hard, and I think that there's no way that we could ever pay them back for what they did, but right. I think the person you are now is, like, winning the lottery. <laughs> it definitely is, yeah. Like, it's, it it, it's like, like it's like, you know, getting the, like, you know when, you know when people play, years ago people played the lost numbers the numbers from like, the lottery numbers from yes, lost and hit the lottery yes. that's how i felt like when you got sober and stayed sober and i watched you go through so many situations where you could have picked up a drink and you didn't i always thought like i, I always told myself like in early, when i was in early recovery i always told myself you know the day grammy dies i'm gonna go pick up a big tumbler or a whiskey you know but grammy passed away and as hard as that was for me, I didn't pick up. And I think that was one of my more prouder moments in recovery, not picking up when she died because I knew if she was here, she would have kicked my ass to kingdom come. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, losing her was, was really sad and really hard because she was just like the type of person. Friend. Yeah, she was, she was a, the type of person that would just, you know, call you on your bullshit and say, you know, I, she's the kind of person like everybody has like that ri in that vision of like their nana or whoever that they like my my dad's mom there is no way in hell that i would ever walk into her house and say nana i had the worst fucking day let me tell you about it oh, that, would, that would that would never happen she, she would have been clutching her pearls like Ooh. she would have been like you are not <laughs> you are not my favorite grandchild anymore i mean that wasn't a secret everybody knew i was nana's favorite but uh you, you know, I, I knew you were Graham's favorite, but I didn't care because they still like they still like showed me love. But yeah. like you got you had a different bond with them because right because they, of, Gra they my relationship handle... with alcohol and Graham's relationship yeah. with alcohol and her being in recovery, kind of wanting to guide me, like her and Uncle John. You know, um, but like being I, I young, would call Uncle John loaded out of my tree. He'd be on the West Coast. I call him loaded out of my tree, crying like Uncle John. I want to get sober. You oh know, and he would, he would talk me off the ledge. But like my relationship with Graham was like we we were connected. That that was our connection because we were kindred spirits in that sense. And also, like I think you got a lot more time with them as a kid than I did. Like I That's really developed. I I was you know Nana basically raised me. Because, you know, mom, mom, mom and dad worked yeah. all the time. And our mother was, I have to say, our mother was a bad, so she's a baddie. She was in the workforce. She work was a force. boss babe. That yeah, she was in the workforce back when it was very rare for women to be in the workforce. So yeah. I applaud her for paving the way 
for women like me. Yeah. yeah, like I would not be in the position that I'm in if it wasn't for mom and her hard work. Like, and God bless her. She didn't even have a college degree, and she like ex- she excelled yeah, so much, climbing the ladder and everything. Yeah, you know, she's so smart, and I think she in- the- she instilled that work ethic in us. You know, and it's it's really incredible. Like we do come from a- an incredible family. We do. But the one thing we wanted to share in this is that this is the perspective of the sibling and the perspective of the person who went through it and how it changed me because I want to say like I don't want to say how it changed me because this this isn't all about how it changed us as a family as a dynamic you know and how it changed us as siblings you know yeah I think that that's like more that's more of a goal shape our relationship into what it is today yeah like we would not be where we we hated each other back in the day yeah Oh like, man, this we had such a love hate relationship, and I think to some extent we kind of have a little bit of a love hate relationship. But these days, it's way more love than anything else. Yeah, like it, it, it's definitely way more love than anything else. Because now I can call you and you answer the phone. Yes, it's like I'm like <laughs> I don't send you to voicemail nearly as much. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if you're in the middle of a show, sometimes you do. But you know, I'm yes, like, yes. If, if I'm yeah. watching Elementary, then I call like, Lauren and I'm like, hey, which what's my do? what's you what's mama doing is she on the phone yeah she's watching her show and i'm like all right i'm not gonna disturb her you know yeah, then I check in with the it's kids. such a good show lucy lou is in it but i know what it's like oh. when you're watching your show and somebody calls you like i'll give them a jingle later on <laughs> yes because it's, it's always at a good part yeah it's like if it's important they'll send me a text and say hey right, exactly so that's how it is but like i the whole goal of this for me was to show show the different aspects of it and to show what I thought initially, because I initially was just like, oh, I don't want to go to, I don't want to go visit a place where people are going to make excuses for her behavior. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, deal with that. And I just, and I think it's important to acknowledge that that's not what Al-Anon is. Like if you have a sibling or a loved one that's struggling with alcoholism or addiction, Al-Anon really is the place for you. Um, and it's not a place where you'll go and people will make excuses for your loved one. It's, it's more of a support group for the people who are dealing with a loved one who have alcoholism and addiction. And you share your pain and your sorrow and your experiences and there's other people there that can be like, yes, I went through that too. And, you know, just vibe off of you with that. Yeah, because honestly, my whole entire mindset about addiction changed just by, you know, and everything that I thought as I was going through it with you and the feelings I had, everything changed and it kind of came full circle in a positive way where I was like, you know, I'm thankful that this happened. These things that I was resentful for, these things that I was angry about, these things that, you know, really truly troubled me. I honestly feel so much love instead of any resentment. I feel like everything happened the way it was supposed to. And we wound up becoming really good individuals and, I'm proud of that, and I'm proud of you. I'm proud Thank of you. I'm every, proud of me too. Every year, like I'm proud of the fact that you know you haven't picked up a drink. You've been in some very stressful situations, mm-hmm. and you've developed better coping. That, that's not to say I haven't had urges. I absolutely have urges from time to time. But what's important is walking yourself through the urges without picking up, because the truth is, you don't have to pick up ever again. You really don't. 
you know, and what do you do when you have urges? Just just so I can understand. Honestly, for me, the best thing, and, and I tell the girls this in my, in my Women Warriors group that I started on Facebook, um, the best thing is to keep your, do something to distract yourself, to keep your mind busy. Whether it's, you know, go for a walk, whether it's binging your favorite Netflix or Hulu show, whether it's picking up a book in reading, whether it's taking a bubble bath, um, whether it's cooking a meal, because for me, cooking is therapy. I love cooking. It really calms me down. Um, And that's probably why (laughs) I'm a little bit, you know, junky right now. But um, everybody everybody got something that's therapeutic for you. I know that there's a girl in my group. She's an incredible, incredible writer. Um, And she's going to be submitting some of her poems to the um, BU Literary Magazine, which I'm thrilled about. Like, I think that she's just a genius with the written word. And she's also an incredible artist. So for her, writing and painting are her outlets. So whatever your outlet is that, you know, you find your place of calm where you find like your oasis away from the world like that is what you need to use to get through those urges and especially like not just even women like there are a lot of men who have these types of issues that don't talk about it because well here's the thing not only did we talk about the fact that you grow up in this in an irish catholic family where you just sweep everything under the rug Men grew up in that, in, like, our day is a thing, like, boys don't cry. Yeah. So it's like they've had to shove that and shove that and shove that down. And I think if if you're going through something like that and you're starting to pick up this kind of stuff, there, there's help, there's resources, and there's never any shame in getting help. I think there yep. used to be such a stigma associated with this. There's, there's I'm glad still it's a being, major stigma. Like, it's we're been making lifted. progress, but it's still yeah, there, very there's much still there. There's still a stigma. There are still people who don't understand they, they addiction think it, fully. There are people who think it's a choice. They really think that you're choosing to do this. I used to be I one of them. choose this life. Like, in the begin, I think in the beginning, it was a choice to partake in, you know, the drugs and alcohol and, and, like, partying. But it wasn't a choice for me when it became an everyday thing. Like, when I started drinking the second the sun came up, that wasn't a choice for me. I, I reached a point where I needed it, where I couldn't live without it. Um, and, and there's no, there's no I shame. I couldn't function without it. There's no shame in going and seeking help. No, there is no shame in doing that for yourself, especially in a world like today where we're so isolated because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I just want to say men and women, there is no shame in going and seeking help. Fortunately, today, there's a lot of places that also offer treatment scholarships to those without insurance. That's amazing. Um, So look into that, everybody. While there's no shame in seeking help. I want to say personally, as someone in recovery, that seeking help is the bravest fucking thing you will ever do in your life. Amen. It really is. You know, and once you take that step, that is the hardest step and everything after that will fall into place for you. It's going to take a while, but you just have to be patient and you'll see, like, your life will change forever and it will change for the better. And then 10 years later, you'll be sitting here recording a podcast with your sibling. Honestly, I, I honestly think this is probably my favorite podcast episode thus far because I'm we've been able to like get out a lot of stuff that and I learned some things I never yeah. knew. Well, I, I just I mean that that now looking back on that now, that's probably the most shameful thing that I've ever thought. Give it up to God. 
and I God will take it away. I honestly just I, I've moved on from it because I know that I went from being in a place with you during those situations where I was like, this is bullshit. She's just, she wants attention. She just wants to be, you know, that person that like, oh my God, I have something wrong with me. But that's not what it was. It was, no. you needed help. I was, I think you, that I was, was a cry for help. For help. Yeah. It was a cry for help. And it was just something that like, I didn't realize at the time. I was like, Jesus Christ, how much attention does one person need? Like, <laughs> you know, and I'm sitting there like, oh my God. Would you believe it? Nowadays, I hate attention. Yeah, that's like, it's I so funny. Fade, if I could fade into the wallpaper of, like, a room, I totally that, would. That, <laughs> that's what's, like, really funny to me now is because back in the day, that's what I used to think. But I, I think this is another reason I wanted to do this episode is because of the fact that you can change your mentality. I went from being very ignorant about addiction and what people go through and watching my sister go through it and being like resentful of her and being annoyed with her and just, you know, assuming how she felt, assuming what she was doing, assuming, you know, that she just didn't care. And it's not that she didn't care. It's not, it's, it's none of those things. It's the fact that this isn't a choice and this is something that especially if you have like mental health issues within your you know hereditary line you're gonna you may experience this you know and that's why me too like when it comes down to it there was a point where like i couldn't control my drinking and then i finally was able to get in control of it so now i can go out and have one or two drinks but that doesn't mean that happens for everybody there are some people who can't stop at one or two and, and honestly, like if you're if you're if you can drink casually, if you're able to drink socially, like if you drink too much, you are putting yourself at risk of developing alcoholism. It doesn't matter if it's in your family or not. Like if you're not taking care yeah. of yourself, like you're putting yourself at risk. Agreed. Yeah, it's it, it, it isn't just hereditary. The risk of addiction is always there regardless of who you are and where you are and what you're doing like if you're not being careful if you're not being safe you can become an alcoholic i know it was a bad experience i know it was a difficult a difficult time in our lives but i'm truly grateful for you i'm truly proud i'm truly proud of you i'm proud of you thank you and i i feel like you've become such a different human being like during quarantine like i said it was such an opportunity for me to spend more time with you and get to know you as you because you finally like let down that god with me you had such a god up with me because i think you didn't you know i I think that without you saying that you were resentful i think i could feel it and i think that that's why i had like a guard up because I wasn't sure if I was going to be, like, criticized or attacked or whatever. And like I said, I've got you up on that pedestal. And when when I, don't I, I, get, I, get, I get defensive if I feel like I'm being criticized with you. So I think that's why I had that guard up. And I'm glad that I was able to let that down. We were able to kind of build on our relationship as siblings. Yeah, I, I feel like I don't deserve a pedestal. I feel like we're on equal footing, regardless of the mistakes that we've made in, or that you've made in life. I've made mistakes too, and I would I would be remiss to not address my own mistakes and be self aware and to put my to think that I was ever above anyone. In my entire experience with this, I've never thought that I was above you. I've never thought that like. 
I, n- I never looked down upon you, you know, I knew you were struggling, and at first I was really angry, and I was like, geez, what a drunk piece of shit, but then, but then I kind of, that was like the worst thought I think I had, but then after a while, like, talking to Ma about it, and, you know, leaning, Ma and I leaned on each other a lot, Yeah. just getting through all of that, and then getting to know you separately in quarantine with you letting your guard down, and you just, like, we just clicked. I don't know what happened. We just clicked, yeah. and it, we just became better. And we had it. We had that moment where you were like, "Oh, she's blocking me in, and I can't go get coffee." But I honestly, it was such a misunderstanding. And also, I'm a bear in the morning when I don't have coffee, so it doesn't matter who or what you are. Like, if if you if you do even the slightest thing wrong, and I haven't had coffee yet, you're gonna get the brunt end of the stick. I think. I think it's really important to recognize that and to say, you know, we've come so far. We really have. We, we've, we've, you know, it, it's been a process. I don't even want to say we. I don't even want to include myself. I don't really deserve any any credit. You deserve the credit for doing the work, putting the work Thank in. You. I appreciate and that. It, it's not, it, you know, regardless of whether I was there and supported you, that's, I don't, I'm not looking for, you know, uh, pat in the back like good for you you did that no like that's what you do as family that's what that's what you should do mm-hmm. that's like that's what you're there for with your family like mm-hmm. I, I truly like you as a person now like, thank I, you I, I like me as a person too I didn't like you for a long time I was just always <laughs> like oh here goes Joanne with her fucking bullshit you know like <laughs> that's how I felt I was just like you know what I just I can't but I'm grateful <sighs> praise it, god it it warms my heart it truly warms my heart and i'm grateful that you did this episode with me i'm glad that you came on to share your you know your struggle because it's not just something that ends when you get sober it's something that you have to fight through every every day day. and you know i thank you for coming aboard this evening thank you for having me and, you know, someday we'll have you on again to talk about something else. Maybe to talk about, you know, the skeletons in my closet. <laughs> of which there are many. <laughs> of which there are many, yeah. You can pull them out like Halloween decorations. <laughs> but, uh... Seriously. <laughs> we've, we've had so much to talk about, but I just... I thank you for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank and you for having me. And to the listeners, thank you for listening. Um... And like I said, if any of you out there that are listening to Denise podcast, um, you can find me on Facebook, um, Joe Elizabeth, J-O. Um, and if you message me and you, you want to talk about, you know, your struggle, I'm, I'm absolutely here to be a shoulder for you.